Well, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read John chapter 15 over us, um, and then I'll pray. Uh, I'm going to read John chapter 15, uh, the whole chapter, no, just verse 5, over us. And then um, I want us to, to sit with this passage as we work through today's message, okay? Um, which is titled, Justice in the Age of Outrage. And so as I'm preaching, I think that this passage is going to rise up in us and even confront us at times. Uh, and my hope is that it would lead us to Jesus. Amen? So why don't you stand with me just out of reverence for God's word? Let's stand as we read God's word, and then I will pray for us. It's going to be up on the screen. John chapter 15, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Lord, I pray that you help us. I pray that you speak <clears throat> through today's message. Lord, I pray that you lead us. I pray, God, that you do work inside of us. I pray that you help us, Lord, to be more like you. We need you, Lord. We need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> if you do have a Bible um, with you, a physical Bible, uh, or if you were filling out the Connect card and you have your phone already open, you can move past Facebook and Instagram to uh, the book of Isaiah. Um, we're going to be jumping through the book of Isaiah. Uh, it won't be up on the screen um, because there's just a lot there. Uh, but we're going to be jumping through it in a few places. And so if you have it handy, it, it would be helpful, uh, particularly around Isaiah chapter 9. And, uh, Isaiah 9 will be a good place because we can move to 11 and then to chapter 1 from there, which will be. So <clears throat> I got to start this. All right, there we go. So today is our fourth message in an eight-week series titled, Not Your Own. And here's why we're doing this series. We want to see the wounded in our church and in our city healed. If you're wounded here today, we want to see you healed. We want to see the wounded in our church and in our city, in our community, on campus, in the neighborhoods surrounding here, healed. We want to see the outcast become family. We want to see that which has been torn down by evil and hate rebuilt. We want each one of you to experience God's presence and power. We don't want you just to learn about God and know some things about God. We want you to experience God's real, tangible, felt presence and power. Our desire is that you would walk in freedom, free from addictions, free from depression and anxieties, which many of us, including myself, are not too unfamiliar with. We want to rebuild hope and care for those around us, starting with the poor, the orphans, and the widows, not to mention our neighbors our co-workers, 
your classmates and professors, our bosses and local leaders, our family and our friends. We want the people around us and who encounter us to experience the real, tangible, felt Jesus of Nazareth. We believe the church, which is the gathered body of Christ and the individual members of the body of Christ and all of God's people throughout all of history, but particularly in a local presence, we believe the church is the foretaste of the future. The church, at least it should be the foretaste of the future. For you theological nerds, the church is the prolepsis of what's to come. The prolepsis is the representation of a thing as existing before it actually does. In the first pages of scripture, Adam names Eve the mother of all living before a single child was born. Similarly, God called Abraham the father of many nations while his wife was still barren. And he says that all the families of the earth will be blessed through him before it ever occurred. These terms that are applied to Eve and Abraham before they come to pass are more than just promises. They're not, ju they're not just promises about their future. While they do tell of their future, they're, that's not, they're not merely promises of their future. Instead, they are identities that dictate their direction of their lives and define who they are. These, these terms and these things that are spoken over them, I want us to know that, like, because especially when we read what the, the scriptures say about the church and who you are as a Christian, they're not just promises about your future, they're identities that dictate your life and define who you are. In America, we rarely give names with meaning. However, in ancient times and in other cultures, a name is more than something that sounds good when you hear it spoken. Instead, a name is an indicator of who you are and who you would become. In the same type of thinking, the church is the living announcement of what's to come. The church is the prolepsis of the kingdom. It is the representation of a future reality before it's fully realized. And, and the church doesn't just announce the kingdom in its message and from its pulpits while it does. While the church should be announcing the message of the kingdom, it doesn't merely announce the message of the kingdom. The church is an announcement of the kingdom at its core. The church in and of itself is an announcement to the world of the kingdom. It's why Jesus says to those who ask him about signs and indicators of his coming kingdom, that his kingdom is already among you. The church is the present manifestation of the kingdom. And like the entree at one of those banging restaurants in the city, the church whets your appetite. For what's to come. The Apostle Paul uses this same type of imagery when he writes to the Corinthians that Christians are the aroma of Christ. Many of you know that I started a specialty coffee shop in North Hollywood a few years back. If you don't, there's a little plug. 
And that coffee is somewhat of a hobby of mine. When you're cupping coffee, which is kind of like wine tasting, the very first thing that you do is smell the ground coffee and then smell the coffee as it's brewing. The aroma of the coffee at various stages is an indication of what you will taste in the cup. For this reason, coffee is actually graded partly by its aroma. I think we can take this illustration even a little further. The aroma emanates or radiates or originates from the coffee itself. Simply put, the aroma is what coffee smells like. And while the ground coffee isn't the final form of enjoyment, the extraction process of the brew method simply draws out the flavor and quality that the ground coffee already possesses. And if the coffee plant was bad, the fruit of its vine will be bad as well. Does Jesus not say that a tree will be known by its fruit? Jesus also says to those who would come after him, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. If you are in Christ, the fruit you bear will emanate the aroma of Christ. And when you encounter the church, it should be, it should be like walking by a coffee shop where the aroma of coffee is impossible to escape. To those who are drawn by G to Jesus, the aroma of God's people will lead the way. The church is the prolepsis of the kingdom. It's the foretaste of what's to come. <clears throat> the reason we're doing a series titled Not Your Own is simply because Jesus has no rivals. If you're not rooted in Jesus, your life will not bear the fruit of the kingdom and your life will not be marked by the aroma of Christ. And if our church is not marked by the aroma of Christ, then our friends, our neighbors, the poor, and the outcast will never experience him through us. And we won't experience him either. This means for us to experience the fullness of what Jesus has to offer us, we have to come to terms with the fact that we are not our own, but belong to Christ. And if this is the case, we can't be rooted anywhere else. <clears throat> so the goal of this series is to unearth any roots that are growing into the soil that is not Christ, so that they may be planted where they belong. In the first week of the series, we talked about life as communion. We showed how God will never be an addition to our life. But instead, we discussed how true life, real life is found in God. God is the source of life and provides its meaning. Our work, our relationships, and our desires are best experienced when they flow from our life in relationship to God. 
We can't live fragmented lives where we separate our life from God and our life from the world. We can't separate our life from God and our life from work, our life from God and our life from school. The decisions we make aren't about just this particular scenario. It's, Lord, what do you have for me in all of life? Because in all of life, in, in you, all of life is found. Many of us fragment our lives. We make decisions not based on what's best for our lives in the midst of the kingdom. And we don't, we don't see God as the source of meaning in life. We find these other things. And it affects our, our, the things we commit our time to. It affects, our, it affects the way we spend our money. It affects how we spend our time. The relationships we choose to be in. We can't live fragmented lives. Then we expanded on this idea as it relates to vocation, which is a big word packed with meaning, but also means that the direction of your life, the direction, the future, the, the, the how you, you, you plan out your life can't be separated from your life with God either. Last week, we talked about authority, and this week, we're talking about justice. And the goal of each of these topics is to reinforce that we don't get to be, nor do we have to be, the kings and queens of our lives. Why does this matter? As I said earlier, we want to see the kingdom of God take root in our church and in our city, and it can only happen when our allegiance is to Christ and to Christ alone. So what does this have to do with justice? And what does justice have to do with you? If you've been on social media at any point in the last few years, you've experienced the conversation about justice in peaceful talks and conversations, right? From the moment Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, social unrest erupted in the country or erupted again. (laughs) The conversation about immigration The humanitarian crisis around the world, whether it's in Sudan, Syria, Somalia, Nigeria, or Afghanistan. Or the overwhelming homeless situation that continues to permeate Los Angeles floods our news streams. And the question is, what do we do? Not to mention all of the craziness that COVID has exposed and accentuated. Hardly anyone agrees on what needs to be done. Unless you have a group of people that you can point us to, right? Instead, the the conversation continues to be hostile. At times, leaving one feeling completely helpless and without hope. And unfortunately, the conversation has been hostile in the church as well. Christians don't agree on what to do or how to respond either. And sadly, many professing followers of Jesus don't think that it's our place to respond at all. And I'm just going to say it straight out that they're wrong. They say things like, just preach the gospel, revealing that they don't even know what the gospel is. Others forget that this present world is marked by darkness, and they place too much confidence in worldly powers to offer what only Jesus can provide. Neither are proper Christian responses. And in regards to justice, I want to say up front that some people are wrong. 
Some people are just wrong. While our society tells us that everyone's opinion is valid, everyone's opinion, like you have a valid opinion, but it doesn't mean it's right. There are some opinions and belief systems and frames of thought that are just inaccurate, unbiblical, and wrong. And while some things are left to wisdom and calling, right, like the outcomes of justice and the specific response to injustice in, in, in different instances, like they're, they're, those things are left to wisdom and calling, and they're not always just black and white scenarios. We have to work through some of those things. Other things are black and white. And what's black and white is that justice is part of the gospel and your participation in the work of justice is part of your obedience to Jesus. While it's not always clear what to do, it's always clear that you should do something. Even it's as simple and profound as praying, though I'm confident there's more. So here's what I want to do today. I'm going to show you, number one, how the work of justice is part of the gospel. Then I'm going to show you how you don't get to opt out of the work of justice. And here's a fun one. You don't get to define it either. Then I'm going to tie it back into our little conversation that we had about prolepsis and aroma. And as we close, I'm going to call you to the plate. You down? You guys ready for that? <laughs> All right. So how can, I, how, can, how can we be sure that the work of justice is part of the gospel? Well, let's, let's turn to the text. The book of Isaiah is a well-known prophetic book describing what the kingdom of the Messiah is like. Consider how the kingdom of the Messiah, consider how Isaiah describes the kingdom of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 6. He says, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be, the dominion will be fat, vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish it. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish it. I'm not going to prove how this passage is talking about Jesus, but it is. And it says that Jesus is the prince of shalom. I use that word instead of the English translation because it's crucial. Shalom doesn't mean peace like we mean it. In our, in our, in our modern day, we think, or in our, in our language, right, in the, uh, at least in American English, right, when we talk about peace, we talk about like an inner silence. We talk about the absence of conflict, right? But shalom is, is in the scriptures, is far more vast than an inner silence and the, and, the, and the absence of conflict. Instead, it means, it means wholeness, wholeness. It means, it means health, security, like real physical security, prosperity, and safety. 
It's an all-encompassing peace that's not merely felt within, but is experienced externally as well. The biblical picture of shalom is an internal peace and an external peace working simultaneously together. It's when all is as it should be. It's when all of creation is living as creation is supposed to be. And if we look a little further into Isaiah, we see Shalom described in detail. Turn to chapter 11, verse 1 through 9 if you're there. Then a shoot will grow, up, grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge. Here we go. Ready? He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with the scepter from his mouth and he will kill the wicked with the command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion and the fattened calf will be together and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze their young ones <clears throat> will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain for the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. Consider how Jesus judges rightly and reorders society. When Jesus judges, he doesn't, he's like, yeah, it's not just what you think shalom is. It's not just what they say shalom is. He doesn't need to see, he doesn't need, you, like it doesn't matter how you, put, it doesn't matter what PR campaign you run. He knows what's cracking. And he's going to judge rightly and fairly. And then consider what, the, consider what the kingdom of God does. It reorders chaos into peace. It, it, it literally says in the kingdom, what disrupts shalom in this present darkness is transformed into the experience of shalom in the kingdom of light. Like little babies are going to be running around like, like, hey, hey, son, go play with the cobra. Right? Like, like, think about that, though. Think about the wolf will dwell, I mean, with the lamb. Like, like, there's not good, like, what's going to happen in this, they're not going to be attacking one another. There's going to be righteousness. The things that kings and, 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 and armies use to destroy each other are going to be turned, like, they're going to, he's going to literally take, I, I read a, I read this one description of it that said, imagine, a, literally imagine in the kingdom of God, a tank pulling into the kingdom factory and it comes out a tractor. Like, literally the things that are used for destruction are going to be used for life and shalom. That's a description of what the kingdom looks like. Earlier in Isaiah, the holistic, uh, holistic impact of the Prince of Peace, the kingdom of Shalom, is expanded on as well. Consider chapter 2, 
verse 1 through 4, the vision of the vision that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw considering Judah and Jerusalem in the last days. The mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All This isn't a spiritual thing, right? All nations will stream to it. And many people will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so that we may walk in his path. For instruction will go out of Zion and the, world of the, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. They will beat their swords in the plows and their spears in the pruning knives. You see that right there? They will beat their swords into plows. That's the tank into the tractor, right? And their spears and the pruning knives, like they're going to take the things that they're killing people and turn them into shovels to plant the garden. That's wild. Nation will not take up the sword against nation, and they will never, ever again train for war. Never again train for war. We know that's the future final state of the kingdom because they're like, like they're training for war still. This isn't foreign to the New Testament. Consider what the Apostle Paul says to the Romans. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now here, I want, I want to say something about that because it's going to be tempting to view that statement as eternal, internal peace. But the passage is not talking about internal peace. It's talking about self-giving love that doesn't insist on its own way, leading to peace amongst brothers and sisters, fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. That passage about peace is in the midst of conflict about food. He says, hey, it's not about eating and drinking. Like, hey, I know that like you spent all this time trying to get yours. But in the kingdom, you don't got to get yours, man. Like the Lord's got you. It's peace. It had nothing to do about this internal peace. That whole entire passage about the kingdom being about leading to peace, or the whole passage about it being about righteousness and peace is about conflict amongst believers. Saying in the kingdom, there's no more conflict. It's social. Finally, Isaiah's prophecy is reinforced in the images of the kingdom that laid out the prophetic literature or that are laid out in the prophetic literature known as the book of Revelation. Consider Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he lives with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And then later in uh, verse 22, he says, I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And look at this. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory in it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. Here's what that means. It's not just about the stars suck 
right? It's not like, hey, you know, even though some, I hate the desert, some people love going out in the desert and look at the stars. I'm like, maybe that's, you know, like, it doesn't, like, there's going to be no, like, there's no night. But what's the point there about the, 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 the gates being open and there being no need for a lamp? It means that there's safety. The reason that they have city gates is because it literally protects people from just ramp, rampant, ramp, rampaging the city, from pillaging the city. The reason you need the light is because when it's dark, you don't know who's trying to sneak up on you. Trust me, I'm from the streets. Like, we used to sneak up on people in the dark. You know what I mean? Like, that's, like, that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, in the future, there literally will be no need for that. None at all. So when you pair the future of the kingdom with the statement, with another statement in Galatians telling us that bearing one another's burdens fulfills the law of Christ and the comprehensive teaching throughout the biblical text emphasizing that the call for believers of all time has always been a communal call, you see that God's people never get to escape the work of justice. Never. It's why Isaiah opens up with rebuke to the people of God who failed to participate in this work. After telling them that they have walked away from the Lord, he provides a path of repentance. Here's what the path of repentance, here's what the path of repentance looks like. It's not just, God, I'm sorry, forgive me. It's wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. It's why the prophet almost can tell the people that God hates the religious festivals and songs and defines repentance as letting justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. The kingdom is marked by shalom, and where there is no justice, there is no peace. And if there is no peace, you need to get to work, fam. For this reason, in the absence of peace, no one gets to opt out of the work of justice. In his book, Shalom in the Community of Creation, Randy Woodley, who's a Native American theologian, reminds us that there is no partial or private shalom. To articulate this point, he inserts a profound quote from Walter Brueggemann, who's a, an Old Testament scholar that speaks prophetically to the American identity. He says, Brueggemann says this, one way the community can say no to the vision and live without shalom is to deceive itself into thinking that its private arrangements of injustice and exploitation are suitable ways of living. The prophetic vision of shalom stands against all private arrangements, all separate pieces, all ghettos that pretend that others are not there. Religious legitimacy in the service of self-deceiving well-being is a form of chaos. Shalom is never the private property of the few. Brueggemann reminds us that our lives are not our own and the effects of our actions contribute to the greater good and lack thereof in society. Woodley carries his point by emphasizing that shalom is not for the many while the few suffer, nor is it for the few while the many suffer. Instead, it must be available for everyone making shalom and particularly its absence, everyone's concern. Here's what this means for God's people. 
where the kingdom of God is present, the work of shalom is present. If there's no shalom, there's work to do. And some, just to push on some of this a little bit, maybe some to anticipate some pushback, some may be attempted to assume that God's people are concerned for the shalom within the church. Have you ever heard about that? You ever heard somebody say that? Like, like the church is supposed to be concerned with peace and justice inside the church. It's not our job to get involved in worldly affairs, right? Anybody heard that? All you need to do is consider, turn to Jeremiah 29, 7, where the exiled people of God are called to seek the shalom of the city in which they are exiled to see that that's not the case. And Jeremiah goes farther than that in saying that when the people of God seek the peace of the city, they will find peace. Brothers and sisters, your shalom is contingent on your involvement in the shalom around you. You can't escape. If God is the one who is concerned with shalom, here's what this also means. It means that God is the only one who gets to define what shalom is. And I prayerfully ask you to consider some of these reflections. While the world makes progress and offers solution to social dilemmas, you gotta know that the world cannot define shalom because shalom is part of God's design and the world is categorically opposed to God. And what I mean by the world is the, 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 the organizing principles and structures, right? What I mean is the governments of the world. Like, like we like to, like, especially like in, we, we love like, um, like philosophical thinking. We love high ideas. And we forget that like there's Satan and demons all around us. And that there's spiritual governments controlling stuff, like involved in things, right? And that the systems of our world are attached to spiritual demonic forces. That's why when we think about things like injustice, this, this, is, this is literally not just like a nuance. This is like confronting demonic forces in our society. <clears throat> Which means that the world doesn't get to define justice. And we must be suspect when the world attempts to define shalom. For instance, consider this. The world has a problem with power. The world has a problem with power. But power is not evil in and of itself. If power was evil, then God would be evil because God is all powerful. It's not power that is evil, but the misuse of power that is evil. And when power is used to oppress, to hurt, and to propagate evil, then that power must be confronted. But evil power is confronted by the all-powerful God, not by giving power to other evil people. In the same light, it's common for some to assume that the equality of outcomes equals justice. And yet the scriptures never define justice in those terms. Instead, some have gifts and opportunities that others don't have, and that's just the way it is. In the scriptures, Jesus tells a parable about some workers agreeing to a wage and then getting upset when others show up later and get paid the same, having worked less. And he essentially tells the ones who agreed earlier, who think it's not fair, 
that that's just how things work. He doesn't give them like, he doesn't like coddle them. He's like, that's just how it is, bro. And that's just how it is, bro. Guess what that means? Limitations are part of our design. And we see this all the way back in the first chapters of Genesis. Imagine Adam complaining that he couldn't have children or Eve complaining that she couldn't name the animals. They're just different experiences and different opportunities. Consider another way this plays out. Our current culture tells us that affirmation of others' choices or decisions is the highest good. And when we fail to affirm an individual's decisions, beliefs, or choices, we commit grand acts of justice, injustice. But this isn't true. Why? Because shalom belongs to God. And when you violate the laws of creation and reject God's design, you participate in chaos, and that's just something Christians can't affirm. And it's the same reason that no person can say that their faith and the decisions they make on behalf of their faith are their own because they're not. When you're baptized, you're baptized in the one body, the one faith, and the one church. You belong to God, and God defines justice, not you. So how does all of this relate to the aroma of Christ that the people of God are supposed to emanate? Brothers and sisters, when we participate in the shalom of the city, we become the good news to a hurting world who's longing for hope and healing. When we participate in the shalom of the city, we become the announcement. We become the good news to a suffering and dying and hurting world who's begging for hope. And when we don't, we poison the waters and perpetuate chaos, which we've already established is not of God, but of Satan anyway. Many of you know what that's like. Many of you know what that's like. Maybe you've even seen the stench of the church abandon its witness, and it's unpalatable. Maybe you've seen, I just want to say that again, maybe you've seen the church screw it up and say mean and hurtful things and do acts of injustice, and you've seen the church just ruin this. And you've experienced the stench of it. Don't let that be you. And if that has been your experience, let me remind you, you you ready for, let me remind you about the fruit and the aroma. If it don't smell like Christ in his kingdom, it ain't. And that should free you from holding your hopes, or, or even God's church, hostage to someone else's crazy perversion. When God's at work, you'll know because you'll experience and you'll smell the aroma of Christ. And if you've been pulling away, I just want to tell you, if you've been pulling away because of past pain, don't let someone who over-roasted the coffee ruin it for you. 
Remember that first cup, right? If you hate coffee, you hate Jesus. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> if, you, if you hate coffee, you still get the point, right? So what shall we do in response? Here's two big ones and then some practical ways it can play out. <clears throat> so the two big ones. Number one, seek the peace of the city. I came up with that one on my own, right? <laughs> and the second one is, let justice roll like a river. Brothers and sisters, like those same, those same words that were spoken over the people of God, those same things that are just, that are just, just all throughout Scripture remain the same for us. What are you going to do? Seek the peace of the city. Let justice roll like a river. You have to participate. You don't get to opt out. But here's a few notes on participation. Have you know it? That expressed rage is not the same as embodied risk. Expressed rage is not the same as embodied risk. Some of you think you're all up on the team because you, be, you just express your rage all the time. Some of you think like, man, I got justice, and you don't. Just because you express rage, just because your social media is flooded with rage and reposted rage, like that doesn't mean you've embodied the risk that it takes. Rage can be manipulated and monetized, and rage does not bring righteousness. Have you confused rage with embodied risk? You know, this is something, this is something I thought about a lot. You know, growing up, growing up in the city, spent tons of my life incarcerated. My dad was homeless on the street shooting up heroin. My wife is an immigrant from Salvadorian immigrants coming to America through tons of hardship, tons of hardship. We've experienced the crazy, we, like, we thought about this. I planted a church in a crazy marginalized community for a lot of years, fighting things of doing work of justice and righteousness, doing all this. And here's something that I've learned from well-to-do people. And I say this with as much like compassion as I can try to. And I want you to ask this question. Look, although awareness and advocacy are always necessary, awareness and advocacy are always necessary. Advocacy that finds its inspiration in a textbook lacks the temperament that's tested by fire. Just because you know about injustice, just because you know about things, just like if you found your inspiration in a textbook, it ain't never been tested by fire. Get to the work of justice and watch the, those demonic forces stand up. So what do you do? Get around those who are suffering. And here's a question to probe you. Are you drawn to the hurting and broken? Or are you repelled by them? Are you drawn to the hurting and broken? Are you drawn to those who are crying out and saying, we're hurting? We're tired. We're suffering. Are you drawn to those who are, you, you know, you see these homeless people on the street walking around? My dad was homeless my entire life. He lived in tents on the side of the street. The first time I introduced him to my wife, we pulled behind a food for less parking lot, parking lot, and he lived behind a wall. And I was like, hey, you want to meet my dad? And she's like, does he work at food for less? 
and he hops over the wall full of rat. Ask my daughters and my kids where we'd go find my dad before his liver and his kidneys gave out from shooting up heroin and getting pneumonia in the cold. When they try, when he tried to give them, when he tried to give them dirty, dirty, I don't know, it's like a, 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 a teddy bear that he found out the, out the trash can. And he'd look at my kids and he tried to, and he want to hold our kids and we'd have to be like, yo, what do we do in this situation? You look at them, man, you don't know the pain that these people have been through. <clears throat> my aunts, all my aunts, man, you can talk to us about it, man. My aunts lived, my aunts and my cousins lived in, lived in cars and, would, and, would, and, they, and they lived off the, the system. So they'd wait every, every, every 30 days, right? They get that SSI check, right, from disability. They learn how to work the system, and then they use it to go buy all the alcohol they want. They get a hotel for a week, get all doped out, and then they'd be out back in the car again. And, and we would go for years. My kids will tell you for years, driving down the street, looking for homeless people, looking, talking to the homeless people. They all knew my name since I was a little kid because my dad was homeless. When you see these, those are like, do you look them in? Are you repelled by them? Or are you drawn to them? When you hear stories of, of immigrants crying out for help, are you like, man, I don't know. They should just get it together. I commend you to my wife. Go talk to her. <laughs> or the other people in here who just are from different experiences. It's, it's different, man. It's, it's different. It's different. It's hard. Are you drawn to the hurting and broken? Are you repelled by them? Consider the work of our king. Consider the work of our king who made his home with the marginalized, who made his home with the outcasts, who made his home with those who are outside of society, who said, hey, come on. Hey, you all, you got your little raggedy clothes? Come on, come sit at the table. I got you. Imagine. Imagine what that's like. And when you do, my challenge to you is to throw yourself into the work of God. You know, I'm not going to tell, what I tell you to do is, is go meet people because when you meet people, you'll know what to do. Put your money where your mouth is. Know those who suffer, not just about them. Bring them to your table or here we go, go to their table. You go sit, have you ever sat at the table of the poor, or are you always inviting the poor to your table? Let the poor serve you. Anybody, anybody tell you that? <laughs> like, let them cook you a meal. Give, give them that, man. Like, like, you know how honored they would be? You know the dignity that the poor, like, you just, like, let them serve you. Not in, not in the way, not in the, like, evil way of that, but in the way of, like, like, are you, are you repelled? Are you scared? Are you scared to go into their homes and their, and their neighborhoods? Will you sit with them and eat with them? Because Jesus did. And when you do, I want you to remember that table right there. We'll close with that. I want you to remember this table. The worship team, you guys can come back up. We have true life because Jesus lets us tear him apart and feast on him.
And if the king of the universe says, I want you to be, that's why we have, that's why we don't break them. It's not because we're lazy. We don't not break the bread in little pieces. It's because we're one body and we be, and we believe it's because when we, when we, it's because the torn body of Jesus provides life to us. It's because the shed blood of Jesus offers us peace and hope. And if Jesus says, you can tear my body so you can have life, we should follow. As a matter of fact, me and Devin were having this fun text back, thread back because I read this, this, uh, I read this article, or not this article, this, 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 uh, book in the, this chapter from a book in, in a book called The Moral Vision of the New Testament. And it said this. It said that love is not actually like the defining call of discipleship. Like, and, they, and they were like, they did this crazy thing, say how like love is hardly ever talked about. But, but what discipleship is marked by is obedience. Obedience to the suffering of Christ. That discipleship is constantly come and die. Come and give of yourself. Come and turn yourself, turn your life upside down. Let, let them tear from you. Give a walk the world, walk the road to the cross. Whoever wants to be my disciple, pick up your cross and follow me and let them tear you to pieces and I'll resurrect you on the last day. And I'll give you life in the meantime and you will find new meaning of life. And that is the purpose of life with Christ. The purpose of life with Christ is to throw yourself into the work of God, organizing your life around works of justice and mercy in the city, around you, in our community, not to go pursue all your wildest dreams, but to pursue King Jesus. Give yourself away and let the world tear you to pieces because Jesus will resurrect you and he'll give life through your broken body. Let's pray. Lord, Help us. We need you. <sighs> we need you, Lord. God, I pray that we would see that true life is found when we give our whole life over to you, when we realize that we are not our own but belong to you. I pray for my brothers and sisters today. I pray, God, that that original passage that we read in the beginning that a tree will be known by its fruit. God, I pray, are we known by the fruit of Christ? <clears throat> I pray that that would even just confront us right now. Are we, and if we're not, Lord, can you show us where we're not rooted in you? Could you show us where we have like vines and all kinds of things like digging into other soils? And if we got to chop them off, Lord, let us chop. Give us the, the faith to chop them off. Give us the wisdom to chop them off, the courage to chop them off. Give, give us friends who will chop them off. Help us. And lead us into obedience, Lord. We need you.